0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Astor Realty Capital's highly exclusive, highly anticipated webinar today where we have brought together two extraordinary figures in the world of real estate and finance. We have an exciting lineup of insights and discussions that will leave you with a new perspective on investment opportunities in today's market and the ever evolving market conditions. But before we dive in, let me take a moment to introduce our distinguished speakers today. We have Joe Burko, he is hosting our discussion and he is asked as CEO and founder. Joe is a nationally recognized entrepreneur with over 28 years of success in profitable investments, ethics, and generosity. Joe serves on the board of several nonprofit organizations and has been a sought-after speaker at many professional conferences. His impressive career includes founding Astor Capital and Burkham & Associates. Joe's creative methodologies and innovative approaches in securing and closing large commercial transactions have earned him prestigious awards such as Power Broker by CoStar and New York Signature Broker by Globe Street. With an existing $2.2 billion real estate portfolio that spans 3.5 million square feet in 12 major markets, Joe's expertise and experience is truly invaluable to be sharing with you today. Secondly, our honored guest today is none other than Mr. Ethan Penner. Ethan is a true luminary in the real estate finance industry. He has a remarkable 30 year career marked by pioneering achievements. Ethan is credited as the primary driver in the creation of the CMBS market. His groundbreaking work has earned him wide recognition, including being named one of the US real estate industry's 100 icons of the 20th century. In 2011, Real Estate Forum honoured Ethan as one of the real estate industry's 65 living legends. In addition to his remarkable contribution to the real estate finance industry, Ethan is committed to improving the lives of others through teaching, writing, public speaking, and philanthropy. So we are truly, it's a privilege and an honor to be here with Ethan today. He's going to share his insights and wisdom with us. And we're also going to be getting an exclusive sneak peek into his new book, A Battle Tested Guide on How to Live a Great Life. So Again, it is an honor and a privilege for Joe and Ethan to dive into important market conditions today and global events that will be affecting your investments. So there we are. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm going to pass it right over.
1: Thank you very much for the beautiful introduction, Laura. That's really great. Um, It is exciting to have um, really what I call my, my mentor, Lucky to call him a friend for many, many years. Ethan Penner was joining us here in Miami alongside with his beautiful family. Um, before we'll go and dive in, I want to acknowledge and say a couple of words. Uh, the uh, situation that we're all experiencing right now, specifically in Israel, um, that is literally affecting everyone, almost everyone in the world. Um, I want to, uh, to give a... Uh, a full acknowledgement to my friends to my family who are suffering right now quite frankly on both sides uh of this conflict there's there's a lot of pain um there's a lot of suffering that's going on and i want to wish uh my family my friends and everyone's affected by this um you know to uh to have peace to find peace to find comfort and may this ordeal uh find uh, a resolution sometimes in the very near future. Uh, like Laura mentioned, I'm sitting with one of uh, probably the most influential finance personalities in in our time. Uh, Ethan started uh, his career, it's kind of like mid 20s, early 20s in finance and very quickly found himself, um, you know, operating one of the largest, most influential desks in the world of real estate finance, have done a tremendous, kind of like, brought a lot of his creativity and done a tremendous amount of work to really be instrumental to uplift uh, a, a tremendous crisis that, that the country, and possibly not just a country, was experiencing at the time, the uh, savings and loan crash. Um, I'm gonna to talk to him about this. Well, I would like to hear his opinions about current economic situation right now world both on the world stage local stage there's just a lot to cover so why don't we start uh ethan good to see you thank you for being here very great yeah
2: always always buddy man
1: always always wonderful always wonderful to be around you and to to uh share and hear your insights you know i have uh i always like to start from from the very beginning, from the origin of things. For me to understand you, I think, looking into kind of like how everything was formed is extremely important. Can we talk about your early years living in the uh, Penner family? And what mm. was it like around the, the well, I think, table?
2: I think that it's um, it's an interesting point you make. And in the introduction, uh, there was an allusion to my book, which I know we're going to talk about. And I th- I'd like to maybe reference it throughout our conversation as Absolutely. appropriate because in my book, one of probably the, my chapters, as you know, having read the book are short and by design. And I, uh, it's a lot of short chapters. Uh, each one kind of stands on its own. The longest chapter, interestingly, is the one I dedicate towards appreciating and understanding our heritage. And so you're asking me about my heritage because heritage is so important. It's important because it's the foundation of who we are. And I think, uh, unfortunately, too many people are unaware of their heritage. Mm -hmm. And I think that that creates a waywardness. And you alluded, of course, immediately in the beginning of this conversation to the situation in the Middle East. Um, But as it plays out in the whole world, I would attribute a lot of it to waywardness, wayward thinking and uh, unanchored thinking, right? And I think that being connected to our true heritage and being aware of our true heritage maybe puts us in a better position to live a good life. And I think that that's been something that's lost generationally, I think, and it's troublesome. It's why I, maybe it was the longest chapter in my book Longest chapter basically being three or four pages. But my personal heritage, like everyone's, is very rich. It's very, there's a lot to talk about. And, you know, in the limited amount of time we have together now, maybe I'll touch on one or two kind of key aspects of my upbringing and my background and how it's played out for me in my life. Uh, I would say I was taught to be. Um, a big thinker. Uh, I was introduced to big ideas by parents who were very scholarly. So, you know, I think in my generation and prior generations, a Jewish home, it was always joked that the wallpaper were just books, you know, like shelves and shelves of books. And that was what the apartment I grew up in, my mm-hmm. shelves and shelves and shelves. You didn't see the walls because there were just books everywhere. And I got to tell you, like, I was a normal kid who didn't really like the idea of reading, but the books were all over the place. And so, you know, I would, it couldn't help it, right? And I was introduced to, I mean, still some of my very favorite um, pieces of literature uh, I read when I was a teenager, like um, Herman Hesse's books. uh, um, um, My favorite probably would be, Siddhartha or Narcissus and Goldman, probably two of my couple of favorite books to this day, um, got me thinking about big ideas and big things. I was introduced to a lot of Holocaust literature because we both grew up in a time when our parents were really scarred by the Holocaust and of course our grandparents. And so that is very deeply in, in my spirit, you know, Uh, understanding humanity and both the good and the bad and man there was a lot of bad right and so it probably caused me to be um i don't know aware of human nature let's just say in a way that maybe the normal person who didn't have my my background wouldn't have Um, but big thinking thinking about how the world Affects everything, how big trends in the world affect life. All that stuff uh, came from my parents' kind of scholarly background, I would say. The other thing that I would kind of, if I pick one other thing to mention, um, well, I, I was gifted with a, a very good education. Even though I grew up quite poor, I went on a scholarship to a really great yeshiva. And I learned really great things, and I was in a great peer group of brilliant students, and we were challenged in ways that I have probably rarely been challenged uh, intellectually since eighth grade. You know, like probably my hardest years of intellectual challenge were seventh and eighth grade, and it's been pretty easy ever since. You know, and you mentioned that in
1: your book, actually. Yeah, Yeah, you you mentioned you mentioned that uh, you have a chapter that actually talks about this tests. Have to be challenging,
2: yeah, tests have to be challenging, right?
1: It's not the case today, right? Like no, it's the not. dissipation trophy. It's kind of like the
2: yeah, my, 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 I would say I had a lot of challenges. I think I was not, um, different than most children my age and my generation. We were kind of taught to fend for ourselves, uh, and deal with the setbacks and just get over it, toughen up. Yeah, that, was, that was yeah. the message my generation was taught. So I think it's made me strong. You mm-hmm. know, My parents were divorced when I was young and that also caused me to be mature and responsible. I learned how to be um, empathetic and responsible and mature at a very, very young age. I would say the one last thing I would mention because it's probably germane to the investment business and my career is I learned on a very, very fundamental level at a very young age uh, to become a contrarian. And, and you know, the bottom line of that story, Joe, is my parents were divorced when I was eight. Uh, my dad moved to California as far away from us as possible, not by design. He happened to have a girlfriend who was living in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And he, as soon as my parents were divorced, he moved in with her and they got married. He was a religious.
1: He was group. a rabbi. It was, it was right?
2: practicing a rabbi, practicing right, a rabbi. with a girlfriend. Okay. You know, right. And so he had. Um, How does that work? Yeah, well, you know, he's a normal. He was a man, and um, maybe not. May, yeah. I mean, my I don't want to judge my parents except to say that they were not perfect. No one's perfect, and um, and my dad was a wonderful, brilliant. Uh, rabbi mm-hmm. and leader and um his his public his public persona and the congregation and beyond the congregation revered him mm-hmm. as a great man because of his intellect because of his capacities mm-hmm. obviously i knew him as a family man you're
1: referring to a lot to his ceremonial. as also. not a, not a
2: very great man right mm-hmm. you know he was not a great father He was very disconnected i don't think i got one hug or kiss from him in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was particularly attuned to me or my brother's life at all. And he was not a good um, husband to my mom. So I knew a different man or a different version of the man than his congregation knew. And when I would visit him in California, as you know, at the end of every synagogue service, there's a like a kiddush, a little mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of like reception for the congregation. And my father was. Because he was revered, every member of that congregation felt the need to shake his hand and get a few minutes with him. And so I would stay there intermittently, you know, having to put up with staying this hours after the ceremony of the service had ended. And every, I would say every week I would go. Fortunately, I was living in New York, so I didn't have to go too often because he was in California. But from the time I was a young boy, I had to hear from the congregation, almost all of them every week, how lucky I was to have this man as a father. <laughs> and of course, from their perspective, I understood what they meant. They saw the public persona. Sure. But the real guy was not a great dad and not a great family man. And it kind of just hit me that, how could everybody be so wrong? And everybody had this consensus opinion of my dad that was wrong. And so from the time I was a very young man, I kind of concluded that if people all seem to agree on an idea, it's probably wrong. Interesting. And, uh, and I've, I've carried that with me in my life. Interesting. So that's and the origin probably, of contrarian. It's the origin of my contrarian. Amazing. From eight years old. So where, where did the uh,
1: self-esteem, you have very high self-esteem, you talk about it in your book, you talk about start your day, look at the mirror, all those things. Where did self-esteem come from?
2: Well, the only true self-esteem that one can ever have is trial and error. You know, you can't be given, it's not a gift that you could be given by someone. No one can tell you, oh, Joe, you're such a wonderful guy, and, or you're so smart, or you're so handsome, or whatever else, because that's all just words, right? You have to have faced challenges and figured out how to meet them, and even in defeat, Maybe, maybe even especially in defeat, be able to kind of get up off the ground mm-hmm. and pick yourself up Build and, walk in, and walk the next day forward. Absolutely. And when you do that, you can rightly say, you know what, I'm pretty proud of myself. I'm pretty proud of the man that I am. Um, so I think it's only by your own deeds and by your own honest assessment of how you've conducted yourself. That's true, and the only self-esteem. All the other, the external validation, mm-hmm. is, more is of a more, it's worth thing. very it's worth very little. Right, it's worth surface, very little. surface challenge. As my wife frequently reminds me, uh, when I get a lot of external accolades, she'll say well, they don't really know you that well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely see Mary's And I don't, think, I don't
2: think she means that as in a way of disrespecting me. I think she's just saying, look. They know you like my father's congregation knew him. Right. One aspect, right, and and it's true. So how you know don't don't run too high from external validation. It's not terribly valuable. It's only when you really judge yourself and you know who you are that you have that you'll have self-esteem.
1: You really have to think about what is it that we're doing to this generation right now. It's uh, you. You speak about it. I I speak about it often. That participation trophy that everybody gets to Mm -hmm. win because they've been there, because they've done something. Um, It's kind of like takes
2: away the challenge. um, I think we made a mess of our world, Joe. I think that a real mess. And and I say we, I take responsibility as a member of the generation Mm -hmm. who came after what they called... Maybe two generations after the greatest generation ever, which is mm-hmm. the one that fought the war, too, and faced the depression. So, my parents were their children. And man, I think they were parented harshly, yeah. you know, because they were tough human beings mm-hmm. who knew toughness and resilience were critical qualities to meeting life's natural challenges. And so, the, the greatest generation, my parents, grandparents, taught their children the lessons, the harsh lessons, right? And then my parents, your parents, followed in their footsteps. Somehow, our generation decided that wasn't really a good thing. And somehow, our generation decided we want to indulge and overindulge our children, and we want to protect them so much. We love them so much that we don't want them to experience any pain, any suffering, and we'll we'll solve any challenges they face, including doing their homework for them and other similar stuff. And when they're not getting playing time in Little League, intervening and yelling at the coach and saying, hey, you know, my kid deserves to play even if they don't deserve to play. Mm -hmm. And I think we ruined our our kids' generation and that, that has been perpetuated now for a few generations since. And that, I think, accounts for a lot of the mess in the world today, because it's not just an American phenomenon, it's a generation.
1: So they're saying, you know, tough times create tough people, tough mm-hmm. people create easy time, easy time creates self-people, yeah. I think we're part of that cycle.
2: Yeah, well, if you, you know, I know you know my book well, too, I think that I talk about cycles and cyclicality, mm-hmm. and yeah. how the world is self-healing and self-correcting, right? So, it's true in economic cycles right when there's a economic boom that's going crazy ultimately prices of things go so high that people can't afford it anymore Mm -hmm. and then demand goes away and and then there's a collapse and then prices fall so low that it inspires a recovery that's the natural economic cycle i think it happens in everything politics I point out in my in my book so that you know, we had Barack Obama's president yeah, of course. who had his qualities, some of which I'm not going to say good or bad, but they were very different than Donald Trump's qualities. Mm-hmm. And so after eight years of Obama, the world or America decided they wanted something completely different. And they got four years of Trump after which they decided they wanted something that was maybe completely different from him in a different way and picked Biden. Self-correcting, you know what I mean? And I think it'll correct again. And as you point out, sometimes these corrections take a long time and people don't see them coming. And there's interventionist policies that screw up the self-correcting nature of things. But we're about to get... We're going through a tough time. This Israeli thing is probably revealing a lot to all of us in the world today. What's What's
1: it revealing to you?
2: Um a lot of things i think um i think very 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 poor education very poor. so people don't really know anything about uh really anything okay and sound bites we live in a sound we're talking about the reaction
1: we're talking about the university even just the
2: realities realities. you know like Mm -hmm. we have people talk about occupation. And when you say, "Well, exactly what occupation?" Do you mean, or the apartheid state of Israel? Indigenous people. And it's like, versus well, what do you, what are you really talking about? Right. But then
1: people throw big words out there, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: But the apartheid state, which existed obviously in South Africa, yeah. mm-hmm. is you know characteristic of an apartheid state is non equal rights for different people, uh, people who are not perhaps allowed to vote. People who are not allowed to hold office, people who don't have access to things like health care and education, people don't have access to economic opportunities. and
1: properties. So properties, in the, in this, as you know better than me,
2: right. in the state of Israel, there's two million Arab yeah. citizens. Over
1: twenty percent of the population.
2: All have all those rights. Absolutely. Like they are represented in Parliament. They all have the right to vote. They all have access to the same education and healthcare benefits that everyone there does as full citizens. They all have access to economic opportunities. And in fact, it's the um, Arab population in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, as long as they behave and not kill people, have the opportunity to come and come every day to work mm-hmm. in Israel and get paid. And so. So this whole myth of occupation and apartheid that you hear parroted like over and over is one of ignorance and, complete, and, complete and, ignorance. and that, and so I think that ignorance, lack of education, lack of intellectual curiosity, all yeah, that stuff is- well, What do is, we expect from a generation from, I
1: mean, I'm sorry, trying not to kind of like put everyone into the same one big bucket, but it is kind of painful to see the cries of alienation of the Jewish state, alienation of, of Jews, Israelis, wherever they are. But why are we surprised? We spoke about it a couple of days ago. Why are we surprised? We're talking about a generation right now that cannot agree if there is a male or a female. She can't agree on the most fundamental and basic things. Mm-hmm. How can a generation like this take anything other okay, than so. look at uh, any conflict and see it in the most simplistic ways. You have the strong, you have the weak. The strong must be the evil, it must be the oppressor, and the weak has to be the oppressed. And so if you divide the world and everything is black and white with no true understanding or real understanding that there are nuances and there's reasons and there's well, uh, it goes those by, different things. I'm
2: going to give you a very simple uh, little story, also from my childhood, as it turns out. As you know, I have a younger brother. And my mm-hmm. younger brother is three and a half years younger than me. And we used to... i used he's, the, to, he's the organized one. Who, him? Yeah, he's the more organized one. He's got certain qualities like that, that yeah. Okay. about so, it like that. So my brother and I used to play board games like brothers do mm-hmm. when we were growing up. And this is I'm not exaggerating. I literally beat him 100% of the time. Not ninety nine percent, one hundred. He
1: attested as well. He, he might confirm. I don't know,
2: but a hundred <laughs> to the point where my mother would come to me and say, "Can you just let Joe win once in a while?" Mm-hmm. And, I, and my response, even as a young boy, was, "Now, what kind of lesson will that teach him? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to let him win. Let him earn his wins, right? That's right. And then I proceeded to beat him again, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and well. When you lose, as you suggest, a winner and a loser, which is the world, the world, it's just the world. It, it so, is. so when there's a winner and a loser, the loser has two choices or more than two choices. But in looking at that perspective, they can be um, envious, hateful. They could call the winner a cheater. They could try to tear the winner down. They'll right?
1: create a narrative that fits or, 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 their situation. Or they could study the
2: winner, right? and they could say, well, what is the winner doing right yeah. to win? Or what it is that I'm doing wrong? And maybe I could learn from this whole thing yes. and become a winner too, right. right? How could I become a winner too? And I think that too many people, obviously, are choosing the former rather than Much easier. the latter. Much easier. Well, it is it is easier don't because ask. it's hard to grow. Yeah. Right? Of course. And I think that self esteem So now it goes all the way back to your early point of mm-hmm. your question, which was the first chapter, of my book for a reason, mm-hmm. self esteem. If you don't have self esteem, you don't believe in yourself, you don't see yourself as a potential winner, then you really don't have the choice of emulating and learning from your losing experience and Mm -hmm. trying to become a winner you naturally only choose the victim mentality and the tearing down of the winner right so i think that we're living in a world like that as you know and uh and we'll only through pain perhaps i don't even know how it'll get out how we'll get out of it but i have faith in the world i do i i'm sometimes uh seem negative or cynical or pessimistic, but in the end I'm very optimistic. I think over time, I think people are very resilient. So I think that over time people do learn lessons. Sometimes it has to be very, it's very going, it's going to be, yeah. It has to be I very think Winston painful. Churchill said about Americans, and I think it's probably true about everybody, but it's funny he said, he said, you can always count on America to do the right thing after it's tried everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: let's talk a little bit about uh your foray into finance real estate finance um what kind of like what brought you there i know you i know you've helped out at home and you found a lot of um you know a lot of a lot of comfort and and um and pride in the fact that you were able to help financially at the house growing up with your mom a single parent yeah single uh, producer a teacher Yeah. Um, But ultimately, you sort of like come up to a a little bit of a plateau and you said, Hey, I got this financial aspect going, so I'm fine now. But then you got into the banking world. So let's talk a little bit about this.
2: Well, I mean, I grew up, as you say, uh, aware of my mother's single mother economic strife and challenge and was highly sensitive to that. And it affected me in many, many ways. One is a responsible young man, trying not to be a burden, overly burdensome on her. She was living a hard life. And then it translated into the career pursuit I had because I would have loved to go into the arts or some other fun thing. Uh, I didn't really have a history as in family of business or finance, but I saw that I needed to make money, you know, because my mother ultimately was going to get old and needed some help. And I also was scarred by growing up with nothing. We didn't have any savings. Like we were living hand to mouth every week, really on her paycheck and uh, who wants to live like that? And so I thought I've got to pick a career that would give me a chance to change the economic reality for my family, for my mother, first and foremost, and then for whatever family I was going to create in my life. So I think i probably I changed majors in college a few times, which is reflective of this kind of struggle I had between doing what I thought maybe I would enjoy, whether it be acting or being a journalist. You know, I've been a writer. I like writing. I've always liked writing. So I thought of journalism and I was actually the sports editor of the school paper, but I found out how much journalists get paid and I thought, it's not going to work for me. And I ended up kind of stumbling into finance because I was good at it. it, naturally made sense to me. So I had that gift and um, and that gift has been with me ever since. And I, I started out at the very bottom of the world of finance, literally at the bottom, like the lowest job entry job one can have. I was like a loan officer trainee at a savings and loan. You don't get lower than that. I was making um, $12,000 a year, which even in 1982 dollars, Translates into maybe thirty thousand a year today, which for a college grad would be considered very low. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had faith in myself, you know. I figured I'm a hard worker, pretty smart. I'll make my way, and and then I kind of got lucky, right? And you know, I think I think that um, I learned in my life, obviously, many lessons, and they all kind of, many of them, found their way into my book. That's why I wrote my book. But uh, one of them is that. Hard work and um, intelligence and talent play a big part in one's success. But timing, which we call luck, but I call timing, plays um, as big or a bigger role. Right? And so uh, I like to look at other people as an example and I say, like, you'd say, okay, well, if um, if Steve Jobs had never met his partner Wozniak, or if they had um, come around five years earlier, there would have been no success on the level they've achieved. They, they're talented guys who would have found some success, but they would not have found this Apple success that they found. And so timing plays a big part. These. And for me, I kind of got started in mortgages only because oh. it was the lowest echelon of finance. And, that's, and I got started at the lowest echelon. Who knew that it would become the hottest uh department in finance within a few years and I would have this unique experience because finance was so low I'm sorry mortgage finance was so low mm-hmm. in the finance hierarchy it wasn't even being taught in business schools so I found myself like with an education that turned out to be extremely relevant that Harvard MBAs didn't have and I just got lucky
1: street yeah the street education the actual the actual education of doing. And, and so you moved from, from that early stage through the years of Drexel um, and then eventually found yourself sort of like in an era, in the early 1990s.
2: Yeah. The market was... Well, again, I, I, was I, not, always, I always look at the big picture. Remember, I go back mm-hmm. to my, mm-hmm. what I said about my childhood and yeah. thinking about the world and thinking about where is the world heading and paying very careful attention to the big picture opportunities, I think that's timing, right? So if you say, okay, I have certain set of skills, we all do, every person listening, we all have our sets of skills. Mm -hmm. And then we could bring our skills and our time, which are our resources, to bear on a certain mission. If the mission is not in concert with the direction that the world is heading, then you're going against the grain and you're not gonna be very successful. But if you can kind of get on the same current as the lake or the stream of the world mm-hmm. and you bring your talents to bear, and your time, and your energy in a way that's consistent with the direction of the world, magic can really happen. And that's what happened to me in the early 1990s. By then I was about almost 30 or 30 years old i had been in my career for already eight years of mortgage finance i had gotten to a very high level weirdly enough because of my because mortgage finance was new really Mm -hmm. and so i didn't have to like pay the dues that of 20 or 30 years that many people do and i was the head of essentially mortgage trading mortgage finance at morgan stanley in my 20s okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and securitization okay. and all that stuff was new and I was among the forerunners of a new business that became huge and so I had all that background allowed me to look at the world and say commercial real estate is in dire need of capital and the bond market through securitization could be accessed I believed to solve the problem. And I was the only person who kind of saw that. And the reason I was the only person who saw this is because I'm contrarian. Everybody else that had the background I had, which were a few people for sure, uh, looked at commercial real estate and said it doesn't fit the securitization model because mm-hmm. unlike single family mortgages or credit cards, commercial real estate is very heterogeneous. Every asset is very different. And they believed, really believed, that securitization only works for homogeneous pools of assets i was willing to be a contrarian and say that's not i mean that's you could believe that but it's not really true and i'm going to go show you exactly that is not true and i worked and i created cms response
1: so essentially at the time you were uh running a smaller desk much smaller desk right well Doing loans, commercial, was, commercial loans not from arthur Morgan Stanley. oh so after, i left
2: Morgan Stanley because The the higher ups that I reported to, including John Mack, who later ran the firm, but who at the time uh, led the fixed income department, which I was a part of, didn't want to expose the firm to commercial real estate risk. And I believe that was the future opportunity that I wanted to bet my career on. So I had to leave in order to pursue that vision that I had. And I got backed by Cargill and I started my own firm and I, it was there that the foundation of CMBS was born, with Cargill's backing. I then kind of came across someone at Nomura who loved what I was doing, loved my vision. And then the, Nomura and I kind of negotiated a deal, and I got very significant financial backing that enabled me to become the largest lender in the history of the United States from scratch. Like, I built a company. From scratch at the age of 32 years old. I
1: mean, within a year, the company a year became, you were the, of the largest lender
2: in the United States. And within two years, in the history of the United States, I mean, that's it's pretty incredible. That's pretty yeah. incredible. Line, I know a right? very
1: short time. You were barely I was 32, 32 years old. 32,
2: 33 years old. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: So let's talk about this period of time, and let's see if there's any similarity to what we're moving through right now. I mean, there's obviously a big pullback. Uh, with all credit, right? Banks are pulling back. A lot less money is available out there. There's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. CMBS, by the way, is down for the last 10 years. It's down. Activity is down by 75%.
2: Yeah.
1: But let's go back to the, the 1990s. What kind of an era we're looking at? We're talking about, you know, you couldn't price. How do you price a loan? You couldn't put value in things. It was very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Banks were just
2: well to give you an just idea, selling how, paper. How crazy that time was. Barry Cernlick, we're in Miami now, and, and he had built a big business mm-hmm. in Starwood, mm-hmm. but Barry had raised his first fund from two wealthy New York families, and it was a $65 million fund. He had just started Starwood with Bob Faith, who was his partner, and who has since uh, become extremely successful in his own right. Um, and they were buying apartment buildings in Oklahoma and Texas and, and those kind of places at a 13 cap on actual in place NOI. What was the interest rate, the prevailing interest the rate Prevailing rates were probably, I would say the 10-year treasury was probably uh, in the neighborhood of six or seven. Mm-hmm. So still 13 caps. So that's a nice arbitrage. Oh my God. And by the way, I remember they were nervous. Like you know, they weren't sure that they were making the right buy decision. Like you mm-hmm. think about that today, it's like okay, if something was offered in a thirteen cap and it was fully leased, you wouldn't really think twice it's just about small it. It's a very short. Bed. You, you would think bed. twice about it, right? Mm-hmm. They were really nervous. You know, they weren't sure they were making. They were, they felt like they were taking a lot of risk. Um, that's how that's how uncertain and unsettled the world was at that time. So you compare that to today. I would say there are some big differences today and there's certain similarities the similarities are that um money on the credit side has really shrunk in its availability for real estate like that time but not quite as bad as that time but like that it's getting there the difference is that there is a lot of money on the sidelines looking for opportunities that wasn't the case back then so back then real estate investing wasn't as institutionally common or or abundant. Meaning like, if you looked at pension funds, uh, probably their real estate allocation, if they had one, was like one or 2% of their total assets. Today it's 10 to 15% of their total assets. So sovereign wealth funds didn't even exist. Now it's a significant investor class for real estate. So the real estate industry today, uh, individual investors were not investing in real estate. And now through REITs and also through funds, uh, they're fairly significant investors. So there's a lot more money chasing real estate and available to real estate to kind of buttress price declines that didn't exist back then. And I think that's a very big difference. Huge difference.
1: Um, The money supply is much, much different today. uh, Of course,
2: I'll say one thing that's also very different on the negative side is that I think the world's way more uncertain today than it was Mm -hmm. even back then. Like back then, there was a gigantic dislocation of the financial system, as two thousand eight was a very it was financial system dislocation. Today, there's asset Quality issues that are pervasive in the industry, regarding obsolescence, mainly office. Some retail. Well, I think I think office, but I think it could be beyond office. Clearly, office is the obvious one, but there's a ripple effect too. Office, because you look at a place like I always pick on downtown LA because I happen to live in the LA area, and downtown LA is a ghost town, and I would say that offices down there are worth nothing. People don't want to go to downtown L.A. Well, if, and if offices are unoccupied or largely unoccupied, then all the area around it that depends on the traffic of office, including residential, right? People lived in downtown L.A. to be proximate to their office. Hmm. But if there's, if there's now no vibrancy from office traffic, then do people want to live there? It's kind of a ghost town and there's a lot of homelessness. It's not becoming a desirable place to live. Yeah. Restaurants and other related retail all gets affected by the lack of vibrancy that the ghost town of the office market created. And so I think there's a ripple effect. And I think there's one other thing though. But your think. Catrillion view at this point doesn't start thinking,
1: well, no. everyone's leaving. No, no. Downtown LA. So,
2: a contrarian, let me tell you. Are we not there yet? I think that a good contrarian doesn't go against the grain reflexively, but considers going against the grain. So, when they hear a consensus, like downtown LA sucks, that's probably a consensus view today. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you say, well, hmm, maybe that building that's on fire is worth running into and taking a look at mm-hmm. it is worth taking a look at but once you take a look at it sometimes you go and you go like this fucking place is burning down okay <laughs> you run out as quickly as you can mm-hmm. and i think that's downtown la today I, I wouldn't i wouldn't be contrarian in that particular thing so i don't think contrarians are always contrarian they don't always say well gee the the world's always wrong i think they start from the premise that the world is often wrong consensus and they and they uh, and then they start to kind of investigate rather than just accept the consensus and, and walk away.
1: what do you how much do you think political uh, local political governments have an influence because if you look it is a tale of two cities we're sitting in Brooklyn. office in Brooklyn is a very different conversation we're talking about $200 a square foot class a office building you can't find space yeah. Yet, if you'll go through New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, yeah. Los Angeles, you can give it away. Uh, vacancies are, you know, it's 40 to 60%. It's
2: one of the reasons I love real estate. You know, I, as you said, I started off in my career as a finance person. And I will always be a finance person because yeah. that's my core skill set. But what did I, you know what I love about real estate is that, it's really about real estate and being good at real estate means being um, aware of all the forces in the world, political, sociological, religious, Mm -hmm. um, economic, uh, policy, uh, everything, right? Everything affects real estate. And so to be a great real estate investor uh, and practitioner, one must really be aware of and astute on a very wide variety of things. And so will you point to the vibrancy of the office market in Miami? Well, oh, Miami is one of the places that have benefited from the net inflow of many people from the places that you spoke of, that are in a poorer spot today from an office standpoint and have suffered a net outflow, right? So New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, these are places that have, have have lost a large amount of its talent pool, its taxpayer base, its productivity. And so that reflects in real estate valuations, right? Not just office, but also multifamily and housing and Right. The question is
1: how much how much of that is specifically uh, due to political uh, environment.
2: Well, I would say it's at least one hundred percent. It's
1: At least one hundred percent.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'm happy you're saying that. Yeah, at it's, least. 100%. It's hard
1: to say, but it's it's kind of like one hundred
2: percent. But you see, this is the thing, Joe. Let's say we didn't like gravity. We just thought gravity is. It just, it just sucks. Like, wouldn't it be great for two kind of chubby Jewish guys under six feet to be able to dunk a basketball? Mm-hmm. be amazing, right? Fantastic. Gravity's getting in the way, okay? <laughs> or bench press 500 pounds. I'd love to bench press 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. Gravity gets in the way. If we could somehow get rid of gravity, all of our dreams could come true. We could fly like a bird, right? But gravity's there. Now, we could pretend it's not there. Mm-hmm. But when we try to bench press 500 pounds, we'd be injured hits, pretty quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. If we jumped off this balcony and tried to fly like a bird, we would be reminded very quickly, gravity is there. Okay, okay. <laughs> And it wouldn't be a good thing. Okay, Because by the time, in a few seconds after being reminded, we'd be dead. I think we live in a society that doesn't want to accept truths like gravity, and you mentioned one, like um, someone with male genitalia is a man, and someone with (laughs) female genitalia is a woman. And that's, to me, as basic as gravity. You know what I mean? And when you start to live in a society that questions gravity, um, gravity will remind you very quickly that it's there and it's not going anywhere. It is okay. unfortunate, but it's very, very much true. And so I think that's what's gone on in, in some of these cities that are failing miserably because they thought um, we could pursue policies like not punish crime. Okay. And that's a good idea. Like, I mean, it's the same thing as saying we're going to jump off of the balcony here 10 stories up and not get hurt. And not get hurt because gravity. Yeah. I don't believe in gravity. Gravity's still there. Not punishing crime is akin to, and believing that things are going to work out, is akin to jumping off this building and thinking things are going to work out because you don't believe in gravity. Yeah.
1: Okay. The it's issue, I think, is that. is that it comes in so slow that most investors, and in our case, we're talking about investors, most investors are like a frog uh, in a in a bucket of water that's getting slowly cooked. And by the
2: way, I'm going to go back. I, I want to go back because I, I, I don't want to seem like a hard right guy, because you know me very well, and I'm sure. not a hard Very right balanced guy, guy. yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something about New York as an example that I just recently read that I'm not, I'm not surprised to have read, but do you know that the New York public school system has about a million students? Roughly, a little less. Do you know that 11% of those students are homeless? Homeless. 70 percent of those students live below the poverty line 70 percent just shocking statistic How how is new york have a good a good future if it doesn't educate its people right if you only are you know you're you have of course elite wealthy people can try to beat the system by going to private school but if a kid like me who grew up poor can't afford private school and we're stuck in a, in a, in a public school system mm-hmm. like the one in New York mm-hmm. and that's a million kids in there. And that's a million, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's another hundred thousand every year after a decade or two of a shit education system producing kids who are not prepared to win in a society. Is it a surprise that the society starts to collapse? No, it should not be a surprise. So to be a good real estate investor requires understanding the education system of the city and the public policy and the criminal, you know, how, how to, one is you don't want criminals, right? So you need, you need to create a society that doesn't create or encourage criminal behavior. And then you need a society that actually creates a deterrence to criminal behavior. But when you don't have either one of those, which oh, a lot of big cities in, in this business country business. have had they're for 25 business, years, right? mm-hmm. the future is very, bleak. very, very bleak.
1: Let's, let us let me hear your opinion about um, our current state of the market. We're now a good 18 months plus away from possibly the peak March of 2022 um interest rate has started climbing up there's been now like 11 times that the feds have increased interest rates um inflation in the summer of last year late summer of last year has reached nine percent but things have changed now right i mean we're looking into you know fairly resilient job markets uh, interest rate is now back to the three percentile the feds are saying we're gonna keep on pushing down we're gonna hit the two percent we're gonna win on this one where do you think we are in this cycle this is This is my sixth side call. Um, I have my opinions, but I want to hear yours.
2: Well, I'm going to turn back and ask you a question. Mm -hmm. And answer your question. Because as you know, good Talmudic scholars answer questions with questions. We always do. We always do. (laughs) (laughs) So I try to be a good Talmudic scholar every once in a while. Um, People count on rental growth. It's a fundamental uh, aspect to investing in real estate. Underscoring the assumption of rental growth is the assumption of economic growth, right? Without economic growth Mm -hmm. and without wage growth, how can you get rental growth? Where would it come from? So let me ask you, what do you think about the future in this country of those two things, wage growth, without which you can't raise rents on apartments, for example, Mm -hmm. and economic growth, without which you can't raise rents commercially on anything, right? Profit growth, economic growth. What do you think, what do you see for the next five or 10 years in those two areas? I think that if you look at the last
1: several years, statistically across, across the board in the United States, major cities, if you want to buy an apartment or house, the buy versus rent analysis is so skewed in favor of rent. Your job should have produced you an average throughout the States, an 88% increase in order for you to catch up with the ability of buying a house or buying a condo. And so, with that as, as kind of like the background of things, rents will continue to be strong. Um, there will continue to be growth, but depends where. So, it's just like you're talking about the tale of two cities when we're talking about Memphis, yeah. the areas that we're focused on... Well, let me ask you, before
2: you go into commercial, let's start with apartments and wage growth. Mm-hmm. Who is going to make More money in real dollar terms five years from now than they're making today. What what group? Very very
1: few. Well, as as I said, very very few. It
2: it is. I mean, on the I say on the educated high end, Mm -hmm. technology and AI promise to be quite disruptive to white collar jobs over the next decade, and keeping I think a very very hard lid on wage growth for white collar Mm -hmm. educated jobs Mm -hmm. on the lower end of the spectrum less educated people i think that they've run into a wall right i mean when you look at when you look at what i like to look at is and i don't know if you pay attention to this what percentage of income is being taken in the form of monthly rent Depends where you are. If you're, in, pretty if, if, you, if you're in New York, it's
1: over 40. Well, it or not, uh, even in
2: places that you know, are if you're a major city, it's over. Even when you're not, even if you're in what I call like you know, uh, workforce housing. Yeah, it's pretty big. It because is because rental growth uh, was pushed and pushed and pushed to take a huge percentage of people's um, incomes. So, I'm a little bit concerned about. Any rental growth assumptions, Mm -hmm. which means real estate as an investment class becomes a bit profitable. And and you know today, as you point out, you know interest rates are much higher. Treasury rates are in the fives, and people are still buying apartments in the fives. The cap rates, obviously, they're counting on
1: a lot of pain. A lot of pain. It's. A lot of pain and a lot of maturities uh, that are coming up. We're both in 2023 yeah. this year and a lot more next year. It's going to be a very, very painful year for a lot of people next year.
2: So apparently we are have only a few minutes. We only
1: have a couple of minutes. Let, let's switch to the book because we haven't quite touched on the book so much. Um, so greatness is a choice, right? I want to point that to the camera. I think it's a phenomenal book. It's like feeling like I'm speaking to you. The chapters, 69 chapters, interesting number. And the chapters are very short. They're like a page and a half, page and a quarter. Hmm. In some instances, two well, three pages.
2: i the foundation of everything I do in, in the book is a reflection mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. is born out of respect for, for the other person. Okay. And so I know that everyone's busy. Everyone has the burdens that they're dealing with in their life. Their families, their, their hobbies, their jobs. They're challenged. And to expect people to take a big chunk of time is wrong. It's just wrong. It's an imposition. I don't like when people impose that on me. Mm -hmm. So out of respect, I created 69 short chapters. Each one of those chapters is independent, meaning if you have five minutes, three minutes, you could read a chapter, and then you could put the book away, and you won't lose anything. There's nothing. It doesn't tie to the next chapter. And so it's written in a respectful way that is intended to provide stimulus and value, intellectual uh, kind of stimulation for people to think about things in a different way and, and give people different ways to think about life and all that stuff. I think there's a underlying belief in the greatness of everybody uh, and a path to how to, how to think about it their lives in a way that allows them to express their greatness and fulfill their greatness. But we do think of greatness as something generally, that's the privilege of very few. I don't think of it that way. I think every human being has the potential every day to choose to be great. Like, I mean, how you present yourself when you go have breakfast with your family or your friends and are you present?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's great. Or are you on your phone and distracted or, you know, whatever? Uh, That's not great, right? Or if you're cooking um, dinner for your spouse or for your kids, Mm -hmm. are you really trying to make the best meal they ever had? Or are you just, you know, kind of mailing your effort in? Everything we do, if we kind of brought our best selves, would elevate the moment and the experience for everyone that touched our effort. And that's great. So greatness elevates and there's a rippling effect, you know? And I think that we when we encounter greatness, could be eating a hamburger in a restaurant that happened to be made by a person who cared a lot and brought their best, we're elevated. And that elevation of our spirit comes through our day and touches everybody we touch. And that's what I'm really thinking.
1: Wonderful. I'm happy to finish on this point. Uh, greatness is a choice. Thank you all for joining uh, the great Ethan Penner. Thank you for coming here. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's fun. It's been Always. fantastic. Always, Always great.
2: Always love being with you. Take
1: care.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found our latest episode valuable and inspiring. Remember, you work hard for your money. It's time to make your money work just as hard for you. Join ASTA's CEO, Joe Burko, and COO, Marika Dinzinhashvili, in upcoming episodes to master the art of real estate investing. For exclusive investment opportunities with ASTA Realty Capital, visit our website at www.asterrealtycapital.com. Don't miss out on future episodes. Like and subscribe to stay updated. Your journey to financial freedom begins here.